you would, please join me again in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, let that not just be words that we sing, but let that be the reality that grips us each and every day, that we would indeed desire to surrender to you, that we would wave the white flag of our own wisdom, of our own strength, and that we would seek you. For we indeed need you. You are the fountain of living water. You are living bread. You are wisdom. You are, you are gracious. You are strong. You are able. God, help us to know you as such and to trust you as such. Help us to walk this day and every day striving after you, learning what it means to persevere, to grow in Christ-likeness, and we pray that you would use this time now to accomplish that end. We pray that your word would move and would run in our hearts and minds, that your spirit would convict where that is necessary, that it would encourage where that is needed that we would know what it means to surrender to you, to love you with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. And we pray this in Jesus' good name and for his glory. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open once again to Philippians chapter 3. Here we are at the end of our Back to Basics series. And for the past few weeks, we've considered our need to, firstly, to communicate in wisdom, uh, to be courageous for the gospel. Last week, to be ever captivated by Christ. And now for this morning, we will consider our need to be committed for the long haul. Committed for the long haul. Yes, we are talking about perseverance, you and perseverance, you and the need for endurance, our need collectively to persevere as a church family, as the people of God. If you are so inclined to take notes, please note this on your outline. Perseverance is essential to the Christian life. It is, and much will depend on your frame of mind. Much will depend on the way you think Think about your time and your life and your goals. And so to help us with this, to help inform our thinking and to give us a biblical worldview as we think about our life and our goals and the time that God has entrusted to us, we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 3 because Paul provides for us a wealth of wisdom, just a wealth of truth and wisdom for us to consider. And yet before we get to Philippians chapter 3, we need to consider how so many New Testament commands are infused with this idea of endurance. So many New Testament commands just drip with this idea of perseverance and continuing on to follow Christ. So many New Testament commands subtly and really not so subtly, just emphasize our need to persevere. For example, over in 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul would write to Timothy saying, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Okay, there is a lot of ongoing action in those verses. Don't stop fleeing these unhelpful things, these things that hinder you and distract you. Never stop fleeing them and running from them. Never stop pursuing things that are good, that promote Christ-likeness in your life. Never stop fighting the good fight of faith, which means never stop persisting to believe that God knows best for you, that God's word is true, that it is light to direct you. Never stop fighting to believe this and, and to follow this. Continue to take hold of the eternal life that God has called you to. So is perseverance really that important? Must we really be committed for the long haul when it comes to following Christ, when it comes to loving one another, when it comes to worshiping Jesus and making His name known? Well, let's let Jesus answer the question. After describing uh, the type of persecution and massive deception that would 
characterize the last days, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verse 12. He said, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance, perseverance, it is a key characteristic. It is a defining mark of God's people. So what motivates us to perseverance? How can we learn to grow in this so that our love does not grow cold? As Jesus describes here is what happened with some. How can we endure in this race? to follow and to pursue Christ. Well, as we come to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, it's important to remember that leading up to this verse, Paul has been describing something. He's been talking about and describing the joy of knowing Christ. The joy of knowing Christ. He has been discussing, listen, how wonderful it would be to lose everything so long as you still had Christ. He said, that's okay. In fact, that's good. He said, I, I would delight in that. I could rejoice in that to lose everything so long as I still had Christ. Paul's been writing about his hope, his confident expectation of sharing in Christ's resurrection, of experiencing joy and perfection and wholeness with Jesus. And it's right on the heels of that that we read this in verse 12. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So this morning, brothers and sisters, we're going to consider several, I think it's five, five building blocks of perseverance. Here's the first one noted on your outline. We need to have a humble, honest view of ourselves, welded to, connected to, tied to a delight in Jesus. A delight in Jesus' loving, securing, and saving work. Okay, I love how this verse begins. By the way, we're going to spend a little bit longer on this first building block. So if you're walking, if you're watching the clock and getting nervous, have no fear. I am a trained professional and, uh, and uh, we're going to purposely spend a little bit of extra time on this first building block and the others will move quickly. But I love how verse 12, verse 12 begins because Paul is so honest here about himself. He is so bluntly honest about his need for ongoing growth and maturity. Now, what prompted this honesty from Paul? Why does Paul feel the need to write this and to share this with the Philippians? Well, perhaps the Philippians had foolishly elevated Paul in their minds thinking that he had attained some level of perfection, that he had attained glory now, and that he didn't struggle with sin anymore. Paul's not going to let him think that for, for very long. Perhaps the Philippians were wrongly thinking uh, that Paul had some secret that he had held out from them, that he had let him in on the secret to growth, the secret to perfection. Perhaps they had idolized Paul so in his mind, and we, we can understand that. Is it easy at times for us to idolize our favorite pastors and missionaries and authors and speakers? Yes, Absolutely. It's easy to do this. It's easy to idolize people and to imagine that they have found some secret. But Paul will not allow the Philippians to believe this. Or perhaps Paul is here using himself as an example to correct error, false teaching that was begin to maybe creep into the church at Philippi, where these false teachers were coming in and they they had some fake phony baloney promise that they were going to sell. They were going to give to the Philippians. If only you will buy my book. If only you will, for a small fee, attend my seminar and my conference. I will give you the success to perfection and glory here in this life. Not so. Please note it on your outline. These verses are a forceful rejection 
of spiritual perfectionism. And every believer, every believer, if you are a believer, this includes you. Every believer can and should have this same kind of honest self-evaluation. Every believer can and should say with the Apostle Paul here in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. That should be our motto. That's what we should say. That's what she would, we, we should remind one another of. I, I like how Max Anders in his commentary summarizes Paul's words. He writes this. He purposes to press on as he had not attained the intense personal knowledge of Christ that he desired and had not become all that Christ wanted him to be. And then he writes this. A fact of the Christian life is that the more you mature, the more you realize how much further you have to go to become like Christ. That is so well said. That is so true. The more you mature, the more you realize how much you need to mature. I'm not there yet. I have not yet arrived. And yet at times as we read the scriptures, as we consider all of the blessings that God has already given to us, there are times that we can almost fool ourselves into thinking that we should arrive some, arrive at some state of perfection and glory now. God has blessed me so much. He has given me so much. I should never struggle with sin. I should never battle against temptation again. I should never have any thought that displeases the Lord. I should be free. I should be invincible to temptation, right? Not so. Wrong. Why? Because we still have an enemy that roars around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We still have the world at large that, that longs to throw every distraction daily in your face to get your eyes off of Jesus. We still have this flesh that at time longs for sin and craves that which is not good and not Helpful. We are in this battle now. We are in this battle today and tomorrow until that time that Christ returns or He takes us to glory. And so for this reason, I love this quote from pastor and author John MacArthur, by the way, who recently celebrated celebrated his 84th birthday. So it's not too late for you to send a happy birthday card to John, okay? I'm just kidding. Don't do that. He won't care. Uh, but, but the point is, no, I'm sure he would. He'd put it on his mantle. Okay, so the point is, though, I love this quote because MacArthur does such a good job of, of, of showing the blessings that Paul had and that we have as believers and yet our need to still grow. John MacArthur writes this, though he, Paul was a new creature with a new heart, a new disposition that strongly desired holiness, was united with Christ, possessed a renewed mind, had the mind of Christ, had right standing before God, had been justified, had been forgiven, had Christ's righteousness imputed to him and was indwelt by the Holy Spirit Paul was not perfect. (laughs) And if you are in Christ, then all of those things are true of you as well. And yet, none of those things give us a hall pass when it comes to persevering and growing in Christ-likeness. And so, from just the first part of verse 12, we see that we persevere first and foremost from a position of humble honesty, honest self-evaluation, where we freely confess that we have not arrived. We do not yet love Jesus or know Jesus as fully and perfectly as we as we ought to. We are not free from the influence of sin and temptation. At least we aren't yet. And we see many examples in Scripture where churches and believers did not do this, where they did not 
honestly evaluate themselves. For example, uh, Jesus told the church at Sardis in a Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, and okay, time out, before we read that verse, next week, brothers and sisters, we are starting our study through the book of Revelation. And it is going to be so good. And, it's gonna, and, it, and, if, and if you're nervous at all, if you're like, oh, we're going to go through the book of Revelation, I'm not sure I like that. Oh, you should. You, you should be so excited to study verse by verse through the book of Revelation. Did you know that the book of Revelation begins and ends with the pronouncement of blessing for those who read this book? You're, you are blessed in, in, in just the reading of it. This is a book that reveals the glory of Jesus Christ in a profoundly unique way. This is, this is a book that shows us and informs our thinking about the way things really are today and in the future. This is a book that teaches us and shows us worship in a beautiful, powerful, profound way. You will love this study. Listen, the book of Revelation should not so much be debated as celebrated. We should celebrate the book of Revelation. We should celebrate the portrait of Christ that it portrays to us. So we're going to start that next week. It's going to be so good. Come back. Okay, on to this morning's message. So Jesus had to say this to the church at Sardis because they were deluded in the image they were promoting to those not in the church. Jesus said this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's not good. That's not good. The reputation did not match reality. The image that they put forth did not match what was really happening inside of their hearts and minds. And Jesus would then tell the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.17, For you say, you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's a problem. What you say about yourself is not true. What you say about yourself does not match reality. And Samson, do you, do you remember Samson in the book of Judges chapter 16 after he tells his secret to Delilah about his, his hair and she then cuts his hair and calls in the Philistines and they play that little game. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. The Philistines are upon you. And then in Judges 16, he wakes up and we read one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. In Judges 16, 20, it says, And he awoke from his sleep and he said... I will go out, as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And all God's people said, ouch, ouch. You got a problem, Samson. You're blind to who you really are. You are blind to the source of your true strength and your blessing. Samson, God's going to let the Philistines pull out your eyes. God's going to let the Philistines chain you up like a donkey so that you are grinding wheat like a donkey until your humility returns to you, until your senses come back to you and you realize who is the God of heaven who has created you and made you and called you unto himself. Brothers and sisters, a key component of perseverance, a key building block is an honest confession and evaluation of who we are, of who we really are. And who are we really? We are people who are still in need of God's grace. We are people who desperately need the work of God and the Spirit of God in our lives today. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Wouldn't that be terrible if that's where it ended? Okay, let's close in prayer. Horrible! That's not where it ends. It doesn't end with just honest self-evaluation. Notice what Paul says in the second half of verse 12. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul was honest about himself and he delighted in Jesus' work in his life. He delighted and celebrated the way that Christ had 
grabbed a hold of him. In Acts chapter 9, was Paul was on his way to persecute more of the church. Jesus appeared to him in a bright light and knocked him to the ground and said to him, asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, Paul knew who the true Lord was. Paul knew who the true God was and who was sovereign over all things. And Paul would spend the rest of his life seeking to know more fully this Jesus who had revealed himself and had grabbed on to him and had called him to himself. Again, I love what John MacArthur writes about this verse saying, he says, Paul was running spiritually to catch the very thing for which Christ Jesus had come after him. In other words, Paul's goal in life was consistent with Christ's goal in saving him. And that's a good thing. Brothers and sisters, we should want that. We should want our goal for our life to be consistent with Jesus' goal for our life. And so what is God's goal? What is God's big picture goal for you and for all of his children? Well, we see a glimpse of it in Romans 8.29, where Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also be, uh, also, sorry, he, ha, I can't read, I'm trying to talk too fast. Let me try again. For those whom he foreknew, here it is, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed. To be conformed. To be transformed. To be made like something. To be conformed to the image of his Son. That is what God desires for you. That's what he wants for your life. It's what he wants for your race and for your progression in the Christian life. Now, in the running of our race, in our pressing on, as Paul writes about, it should be obvious, but I will say it anyway, we are not competing against one another. We are not competing against other Christians in the sense that We are hoping that believers around us lose and don't become like Jesus, but we win and we do become like Jesus. How foolish is that? How crazy would that be? It is so obvious from what Paul writes here that in his race, Paul is not comparing himself to other Christians. Paul is not racing against the Philippians, hoping that he wins and they will lose. No, Paul is not satisfied or dissatisfied because he's comparing himself with other believers. That would be so foolish. Why? Because other Christians are not the standard. Listen, your goal, your direction, your focus is not, well, how well are they doing? How well is she doing? Well, I think I'm certainly better than him, not as good as her. Hmm, I think I feel pretty good about this whole thing. You're crazy if that's the way that you're thinking. Listen, how how easy would it be for Paul to feel so full of himself if he was, say, comparing himself to Matt Vowinkle or to, or to my say, hi, Matt. And so, right, how crazy would that be? Of course, Paul would feel good about himself then. He could even say, I've arrived because I'm so much better than that guy or that guy or that girl. That's not where Paul goes with any of this. Christ is the standard. Jesus is always the picture and he is always the goal for us. And who is this Jesus? How does Paul describe Christ here as the one who has grabbed a hold of him? How did Jesus do that? This is the Christ who loved Paul. This is the Jesus who died for Paul. This is the Christ who grabbed a hold of him in Acts chapter 9, who placed his spirit within him. This is the Christ who longs for our growth, who died to make it happen. This is the Jesus who will one day return and call us to glory and perfect us in glory. So, yes, building block number one, we need to have an a humble, honest view of self, welded to a delight in Christ. Next, verse 13. Look at the next. I love this. Verse 13 begins. Brothers, I do not consider 
but I have made it my own. Okay, stop there. So in case you just forgot what Paul said in verse 12, he says it again. So just in case you you thought again, somehow I attained perfection and glory and I've already arrived. I haven't. Let me tell you again. Let me remind you again. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, for those of you who are good at math, for those of you who can count, you immediately detect a problem in this verse. Paul's like, there's one thing I do. And then he lists three things. Okay, so Paul's like, this is it. I'm going to do one thing. I forget, I strain, and I press on. Okay, here's what I would say to you math people. Don't let math ruin a wonderful verse. Okay, don't don't let your math... Thank you. Yeah, you math people, I... We, we get you. We, we see. Don't let math ruin this verse for you. The, the point here is not mathematical precision. The language that Paul uses here is meant to inspire us to something. It's meant to guide us and motivate us to a clear focus and to a intense pursuit of something. Note this on your outline. When it comes to perseverance, intense focus is necessary distraction will lead to disaster. And Paul is very strong on this point. Paul is purposefully punchy and direct on this point. In fact, in the text, the words I do are not actually in the Greek text. Where, where, where we read, Paul says, but one thing I do, that last I do, it's not in the Greek text. Paul's writing here is purposefully abrupt and terse and short and punchy because he's trying to make he's trying to make a point. We could translate this verse as but one thing forgetting what lies behind. Right? Paul's he's he's aggressive in the point that he is making here. And what's interesting is that this little phrase, this little phrase, one thing, it shows up frequently in Scripture. In fact, even as you hear that phrase, one thing, maybe there are other verses or passages that are coming to your mind. And usually that phrase, one thing, is not referring to literally just one thing, but one area, one important truth that calls out for our attention. For example, when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler in Mark 10, we read this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So this one thing that Jesus is talking about here is really about what? This one thing is about exposing the idol of this man's heart. That's the, that's the one thing that Jesus wants him to see. You have an idol and you need to get rid of it. This money that is consuming your heart and mind, it is killing you spiritually. You need to get rid of it and come and follow me. In Luke 10, when Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And remember, Martha gets upset with Mary because Mary is at the feet of Jesus listening and, 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 and learning. And Martha is doing all the hard work that needs to be done. And she's mopping and vacuuming and cooking and cleaning. And then, and then she comes to Jesus so exasperated. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What is this one thing that is necessary? It is to sit at the feet of Christ and to love Him and to adore Him and to listen to Him and to treasure Him. That is the one thing that Jesus has in view here. And then in Psalm 27, the psalmist writes, 
One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So here it is. Here is the one thing that the psalmist has prayed for, which means he doesn't get any other prayer requests. This is it. He's got one prayer request and he's never allowed to... No, that's not the point of the text. That's not the meaning here at all. He can pray for other things. I'm sure he did pray for other things. But this one thing that is to be a consuming, controlling priority in his life is what? It is the worship of God. It is to behold God and to love Him and to treasure His Word. This is the one thing that the psalmist has prayed for. And brothers and sisters, that is Paul's point here in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, one thing I do. He says, this is a priority, a controlling, ruling priority that must be preeminent in my life forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is so helpful, brothers and sisters. This helps to narrow our view. This helps to bring things into sharp focus because too often we find ourselves scattered in our thinking. We can find ourselves chaotic in our hearts and minds, just crazily running from one thing to the next. And instead, we need to have a focus like Paul exemplifies here. And and I think there's another man in Scripture that had this same kind of focus, although dealing with a different problem, and that's Nehemiah. Remember when Nehemiah was building the wall, when God had called him and led him back to Jerusalem and he was to build the wall and there were enemies, there were opponents that wanted to constantly distract him and stop him from building the wall. This is the response that Nehemiah always gave when they would send him messenger after messenger saying, come away, come and meet with us, come have lunch with us, come on, let's talk about this. This is what Nehemiah said, his response I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Brothers and sisters, that should be our answer when the enemy calls. When temptation and distractions present themselves to us, we ought to say simply, Oh, I am so sorry. I cannot come to the phone right now. Please leave a message and I'll be sure to call you back. Right? That should be our answer. We are focused. We are intent in following Christ and living for Christ and maintaining a proper focus on His goals and His desires for our life. And believe it or not, most athletes and musicians understand this concept really well. This concept of focus, priority, and attention. For example, imagine someone said to you, I've decided to become a professional athlete. I'm going to be, in fact, an elite athlete. I'm going to compete at the highest level. To which you said, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. Which sport are you going to play? Which sport are you going to become a professional in? And they said, every sport. Every sport. I'm going to be a professional basketball player, a professional baseball player, football player, hockey player. I'm going to go on tour with the PGA. I'm going to compete in the Olympics as a swimmer. I'm going to destroy my opponents at Wimbledon. I'm going to get a gold medal in curling. Pickleball is going to become my life. I'm going to win the Kentucky Derby. I'm going to dominate at the World Cup. And then I'm going to outcycle Gary Ward. And then last of all, that can't be done, so you know this is fictional. And then last of all, I'm going to win the Brickyard 400 and the Indy 500. Now, I know I didn't just name every sport, but go with the analogy. What would you say to someone like that? What would you say to someone who shared that with you? You would say... No, it, it doesn't work that way. You must choose. You must choose 
where you are going to put your focus and your energy and your attention. Just like a musician cannot specialize in every instrument. You cannot be a virtuoso in every instrument. There is estimated to be, listen, there is estimated to be in over 1,500 different instruments in the world today that you can purchase and play. You only have 24 hours in each day. You must choose. You must decide where you will put your focus, where you will put your energy. And Paul is saying here, I have made my choice. I have made my decision. The one thing I'm going to be about, the one thing I'm going to press on towards is Christ, plain and simple. His goal, his desires, his character is the one thing. Now, here's where things get really sticky. Notice again what Paul says at the end of verse 13. Paul writes, Forgetting what lies behind, And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here we see our next building block, number three. Your past successes or your past failures do not guarantee success or failure in the present or future. You must choose to take the right next step today. Brothers and sisters, please do not misunderstand Paul. When Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, we need to understand his words in context. We need to understand his words in light of what the New Testament teaches about about our past. For example, Paul is not encouraging us to forget the past, if by that you mean you should forget your conversion, you should forget what God has done for you in the past, you should forget how God has been faithful in the past, you should forget all of the past blessings that inspire praise and thanksgiving in you today. No, forget all of that, because Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, so I will forget all of the blessings and the goodness of God. No! A thousand times no. And... Paul is also not encouraging us to forget our past if there is something from our past that needs to be dealt with. Paul is not saying, don't take responsibility for your past. Don't, don't own up to the, to the things that you've done in the past. Remember Zacchaeus, that wee little man, that wee little man is he. Don't worry about paying back all of those people that you cheated and wronged, Zacchaeus, because Paul said forgetting what lies in the past. So don't worry, Zacchaeus, you can just keep all of the money. Don't be honest about your past sins and your failures and your need to ask for forgiveness for the people around you. Ignore all of that. No. A thousand times no. Paul is not saying that here. So what is the point? What is Paul teaching? The point is, whatever has happened in your past, do not let that stop you from following Christ today. Whatever has happened in your life, do not Let that be an excuse that keeps you from Jesus' call to come to Him and to love Him and to follow Him and to serve Him today. Listen, I'm afraid that too many Christians can allow their past successes and achievements to make them lazy, self-centered, and self-indulgent today. Don't ever be the Christian who says, Listen, I've served the Lord. I've done my time. I've served the Lord for like 40 years. It's time someone serves me. I've been on the missions trip. I've served in the nursery. One year I even volunteered for VBS, for heaven's sakes. I have done my part. And it is ready. Time for me to have some me time, some downtime. It's time for me to watch TV with the rest of the years that God has given me. If that's your mindset, you You need to forget what lies in the past. You need to be available to Christ today. Those past successes, praise God for them. Let them inspire you to future service and growth today. And and do not be the person who says this about their past. My past totally disqualifies me 
from following Christ, from serving Christ. I am out of the game. I have been so rebellious towards God. I have had a hard heart towards the things of God, maybe for decades. I have said no to God. I can't even remember how many times I have said no to God. I have lived for myself. What's the point? God could never use someone like me. You don't know the darkness and the hardness. I'm so mangled. I'm so messed up. Listen, if that is you, you also need to forget what lies behind. You need to see the power of God's grace today. You need to understand that God loves to work through and to use humble, broken vessels before him. Remember, the the Apostle Paul boasted about his weakness. He loved to talk about his weakness. He he said in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's, That's the point. Today, the power of Christ can rest upon you. Your past does not prohibit or hinder you from following Jesus today, from you taking the right next step that would honor Him and that would would take one step closer to you being more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that today. Don't live off of past victories. Don't be weighed down by past sin. Take the right next step to following Christ. Lean into Christ-likeness. Lean into His mercy and His grace. Lean into what it is that God wants to do in you today. And again, the whole idea here in Philippians 3, it is not perfection, but perseverance that is in view. Persevere until that day when Christ returns or until you are called home to glory. Now, that's the point at the end of verse 14. Paul writes, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Please note this on your outline. Building block number four. We successfully persevere by aggressively living for, longing for, and looking forward to our future with Christ. That's, that's the point. That's Paul's point. He, Christ, is our joy. Christ is our reward. To know Him, to know Him now and to know Him more fully and to one day know Him perfectly, to delight in Him, to share in His glory and goodness, that is what Paul has in mind and he is aggressive about it. In verse 14, Paul says that he will press on. This is a Greek verb. It has the idea of intense pursuit. It has the idea of a hunter who is aggressively tracking and hunting his prey. Paul says, that's how aggressive I am about this. I am pursuing Christ to know Him and to be made like Him. I love how Gordon Fee summarizes this verse. He writes, The goal is God's eschatological conclusion of things. The prize is Christ, which in context means the final realization of knowing Him. This is what Paul would gladly die to gain. This is what his whole life is about. No other reward could have any meaning for him. He's right. And this is so important that we remember. I hope you know this. If not, I'm about to burst your bubble. But okay, the goal, the prize, is not this life. It's not this. It's not right here, right now. The goal, the prize, is not the present moment. It is not lots of money. It is not fame. It is not sex. It is not physical strength. It is not a fulfilling career. It is not a steady flow of interesting friends who always make you laugh. No, listen, you know that you are living in a lost and hopeless culture when everyone wants to make uh, the most important things about life this moment, this life, this instant, this second, when we are trying to squeeze all ultimate, ultimate meaning and joy and purpose from a sad, sin-cursed world. 
you know you're living in a lost culture. You know you're living in a culture that desperately needs the hope of Christ. It needs the aroma of Christ. See, instead, listen, instead, followers of Christ, we, we can be at peace. We can have joy here and now. Why? Precisely because we are looking to the future, because we know of what is to come. Again, I love how Gordon Fee describes this in his commentary. He writes, Paul finds life meaningful precisely because he sees the future with great clarity. And the future has to do with beginnings. The now redeemed realization of God's creative purposes through Christ the Lord. There is no other prize. Hence, nothing else counts for much except knowing Christ, both now with clear and certain hope for the future. As Paul talks about pressing on, as he talks about the race, he's drawing upon the idea of uh, the Olympic Games, of, of running your race. And I, I found this interesting. In Athens, in Athens, uh, about the year 600 B.C., under the leadership of Solon, uh, I don't know if I'm saying his, his name right, but uh, I don't care. Um, if, you, if you won the Olympic Games, uh, listen to this. You received, as you know, uh, the crown of wreaths that would fade and would become brittle and dry. You would also win this. You would win 500 drachma, which was about two years wages. And you would also win, I love this, a lifetime free meal ticket so that you could eat for free in the city of Athens whenever you wanted. And not only would you win that, but you would also be guaranteed that you would have a front row seat in the theater whenever you chose to attend. Man, that's incredible. No, that is so shallow. That is so fading. Listen, if that's what your life is about, that is tragedy. That is absolute tragedy. That is, that is a eternally shallow, meaningless prize. Do not live for that. Live for what cannot fade. Live for what Paul will describe just a few verses later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where he will say, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And all this, the goal, the prize, the upward call of God, how is it made possible? How does it happen? In whom? Through whom? Look at the last three words of verse 14. It happens in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Now I know I've been really quote heavy this morning, and I promise this is the last one. Last quote. William Hendrickson said it like this. This is good. It is only in Christ Jesus that this upward call, this holy calling is possible. Without him, it could neither have been given nor obeyed. Apart from his atoning sacrifice, the glorious prize to which the call leads the way could never be awarded. All of this is to the praise and the glory of Christ and his grace. And so, look at the last two verses and then we're done. Verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Lastly, note this on your outline, building block number five. Recognize that perseverance is a church-wide project. It is. And it is something that you must ultimately trust God to accomplish in the lives of those you love. And I, I hope you see both of those things in these two verses. Yes, perseverance. It is a church-wide project 
project where we are to encourage one another to persevere. And Paul does that here. We are supposed to encourage one another to think in ways that are right, in ways that mature, in ways that promote Christ's likeness. And yet, here, Paul also entrusts the Philippians to God because he knows he can't force them to think in a right way. Right? You, you can't do that. Parents, you can't do that. You can't make your kids think in a mature and, and in a godly way, which is what Paul says here. That's why he says, look, if you, if you think otherwise in this, I get it. It takes time to grow. God will show you that. God will reveal that to you. You're ultimately in his hands. You're not in my hands. That's, that's the point that Paul is making here. But notice how he ends in verse 16 saying, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You say, what is that? That's perseverance. (laughs) He says, no matter where you are in your journey and in your growth of Christ-likeness, hold fast to what you know to be true. Hold fast to what you have thus far attained by the mercy and grace of Christ. Continue to walk this way. Persist in the good work that God has already begun in you. In other words, stay in your lane, bro. Stay in your lane. Don't get out of the lane that God has. He has you in a growth lane, a Christ-like maturing lane. You stay there. In other words, follow the yellow brick road. Follow the path that God has laid out for you by His Word and by His grace and by the leading of His Spirit. Don't wander off and fall asleep in the poppies like Dorothy did. So how do we do this? How do we hold true to what we have attained? Well, from what we've seen here this morning, we don't do this by running alone. We don't do this by following our hearts. We don't do this by always trusting our feelings. We don't do this by foolishly believing that we've already arrived and we're already perfect. No, we hold true to what we've attained by the wisdom of God's word, by the power of God's spirit, by the encouragement and the fellowship of other believers, by submitting to God throughout all the trials and the pains and the joys and the blessings of life that God brings into our life to shape us and to make us more like Christ. The point is, by God's grace and for our joy, we are committed for the long haul until that day when Christ returns. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do celebrate you this morning. We rejoice in your goodness and your grace. Lord, we want to be, we want to say with Paul that we press on, that we grab hold of the one who has grabbed hold of us. God, we pray that that would be true of us. We pray that we would persevere to the end, that we would continue to grow. God, if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't even begun this race, who doesn't know yet Jesus as Lord and Savior, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation that they would, by faith, turn to Christ, that they would repent, that they would find life and joy in Him. Lord, we pray that as we leave here today, we would not forget our need to press on, but that You would accomplish Your good work in us and through us, and that You would do it not through our effort, but through Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.